And if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Acts chapter 20, uh, there at the tail end, and we're heading into chapter 21, uh, continuing to walk through the book of Acts. And uh, so all of us, at some point at least, uh, woke up this morning. And, and so uh, I want you to kind of go back to early this morning, wherever that might be, to your alarm going off. Now, some of you, you don't need an alarm, you just get up. But just curious, who are y'all that don't need an alarm? You just get up. All right, respect. All right, respect for you all. Uh, and uh, so some need, need that alarm. And so that alarm goes off and, and you had a decision to make, right? As soon as that alarm goes off, the decision is, do I get up or do I hit snooze? All right. And so there is this big debate and more that goes on in our minds during that time. And so maybe it's time to hit the alarm off and you decide to get up or you decide to hit snooze and you lay back down. And then what happens? Snooze comes back or, or the alarm comes back around again. And then it's like, okay, do I hit snooze again? And there's like this, even before you ever get out of bed, there's like a multitude of decisions that take place before your feet ever hit the ground. And, and, and uh, studies show that the average adult or person makes around 35,000 decisions every single day. 35 conscious decisions. Now, I think we all agree, like, all decisions are not created equal. Like, eating a Pop-Tart or who you're going to marry are in two totally different uh, fields, okay? Uh, but there are some decisions, right? that are very, very important. And, and as you seek wisdom in making these significant decisions, there can at times be a tension. And the tension is, is that if you've sought the Lord and you've prayed about it and you've uh, sought counsel, that perhaps there have been moments along the way where you've felt, sensed with all of your heart that God is saying go, but everybody else is saying no. And what, what do you do when that happens? Because it can be attention. It can be um, confusing at times when you're convinced in a very specific step of obedience that God is calling you to obey him and you really sense with all your heart, this is what God's calling you to do. But yet as you share, as you ask people what they think, you seek counsel, they're like, they're like, I don't think so. What happens when God says go and everybody else says no? We're not talking about trivial decisions. We're talking about life-changing, life-altering decisions. Like who you're going to marry. Perhaps even there are some in this room right now, you are praying over a change in vocation. And maybe for some, it's not a change in vocation, but it's a change in location. You are praying about shifting around some priorities that as you take this step that you believe the Lord is calling you to do, it's going to change a lot about everything. It's going to change the way that you spend your time. It's going to change the way that you use your gifts that God's given you, the way you use your resources, perhaps even the way you spend retirement. So what do you do when God says go and everybody else says no? We're going to see this through Paul as he is wrapping up what is his third missionary journey. Paul 
is, uh, as we're going to pick up in the text, he is wrapping up a, a pastor's meeting in Miletus. And he's just gathered the Ephesian elders and they've had some time together and they're about to pray together and he's going to make his way to Jerusalem. Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem. He wanted to get to Jerusalem for a few reasons. Uh, One, he wanted to get there in time to celebrate Pentecost. He had missed Passover. He wants to get there by Pentecost. Also, Paul, through the Macedonian churches that he's helped plant and, and be a part of and encourage, they have taken a love offering for the impoverished church in Jerusalem. As you can imagine back in Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost and and Peter's preaching and thousands come to faith in Christ, that there were no doubt thousands of people that no longer had a job at the temple because they surrendered all they had to King Jesus. And so there was great poverty and persecution that had hit the church there in Jerusalem. And so Paul uh, had, had been collecting a love offering to be able to take to the church there in Jerusalem and to say, hey, your brothers and sisters, we love you. We're with you. Uh, here's a gift. And, and also for Paul, he had a burden for Jerusalem. He had spent a lot of time there. He had a burden for brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but he also had a burden for those that were once as he was. Because Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was once Saul. And Saul, as a matter of fact, he, he actually made it his aim to end Christianity. And it was in that aim for persecution and ending Christianity that he was on his way to Damascus. And the Lord chased him down, got his attention, and rescued him by his grace. He wanted those that were like him to experience the love and grace and forgiveness of God. Back in Acts 19, verse 21, Paul said this, after these events, talking about the riots in Ephesus, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. So Paul had yielded his little S, his spirit, to the big S, the Holy Spirit, and resolved in his heart that I will follow I will follow you. I will follow your call. I will walk in obedience to your call. And so God gave Paul a very clear go. But as we are going to see, everybody else said no. So let's start back in chapter 20, verse 36. And we're going to ease into chapter 21. The Bible says this. And again, he's wrapping up his time in Miletus with the Ephesian elders. It says in verse 36, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Verse one, and when he had parted from them and set sail, We came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there Patera and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So what we're going to see here is that the church entire warned him. 
They warmed him. Um, he was in Asia Minor over there in Patera, found a ship that was headed over to Phoenicia, which is the, the strip of land right on the west coast there uh, above Caesarea. And then you had um, Ptolemas, and then you had Tyre up to the north. And so they make it to Tyre. Evidently, it was a big boat. They had a week's worth to unload. And so he's there for seven days. And as he's there, he's going to seek out disciples. He's seeking out brothers and sisters in faith. And the Bible says over in verse four, that through the spirit, they were telling Paul not to go. If you were to dig into that original language, that word they were telling him is a present active form, which means they were keeping on telling him. And so they didn't just tell him once. They didn't just tell him twice. They kept on telling him, Paul, don't go. And I don't know exactly what it looked like, but it could have been they gather for breakfast and they're like, Paul, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us what's waiting for you in Jerusalem. Don't go. Lunch rolls around. Paul, suffering is awaiting you in Jerusalem. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go, Paul. Supper time rolls around. Paul, God has revealed to us what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Please don't go. And the language there is over and over and over again. These brothers and sisters in Christ were telling Paul, don't go. Now, there is no doubt that the church had gotten this word of knowledge from the Lord. That suffering would await. Paul knew it. Paul knew it. He's like, everywhere I go, I get these messages from the Spirit. If you think about back to his conversion in Acts chapter 9, he was on his way to Damascus. He was going to end Christianity. He was on his way to persecute the church. He was on his way to stop this gospel movement that was going on. And God, God stopped him, pursued him, blinded him, rescued him, saved him, and told him to go to a guy's house named Ananias. And listen to this. Over in Acts 9, verse 13, the Bible says this. Ananias and God are having a conversation. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of of my name. Over in chapter 20, verse 23, Paul said this, the spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. I don't think for a minute that Paul didn't hear them out, that he didn't value what they had to say, that he didn't listen to them. The spirit had given them that word that, Hey, Paul, if you go, do you understand suffering is going to happen Please don't go. But Paul did not see suffering as a don't go. He saw it as a prepare as you go. He saw it as a preparation. He knew what God had told him to do. And after seven days of don't go, the time had come for him to get back on the boat. And this time they're going to move from Tyre to a, the next city down in Ptolemais. The Bible says in verse 5, when our days were ended there, we departed and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. 
And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. In verse 7, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Tolemas and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. So the church in Tyre warned him, don't go. And now he's made a day trip there in Tolemas and he's about to make his way one more trip, one more city down further south in Caesarea. The church in Caesarea now is going to warn him. In verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him and he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So you might remember Philip. I love Philip. Philip, Philip, is, Philip is, is amazing. If you look back in Acts 6, we were introduced to Philip when there was a, a lot of needs that were in the local church there in Jerusalem and, and a distribution of food had been overlooked with, with, uh, with some of the widows there. And that was a need that needed to be addressed. The apostles knew that. And so they gathered together. They could not neglect prayer and the preaching of the word. And so they chose seven. These were men who were full of the spirit and set apart. And these were table waiters. And so Philip was one of those table waiters. And he was there and he was just a faithful brother who loved Jesus and served and then in Acts 8, we read about the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. And it was through that persecution that it pushed the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And one of those who took the gospel outside of Jerusalem was the table waiter named Philip. Only now, Philip's not a table waiter. He is a preacher. He's an evangelist. And he goes to Samaria of all places. The Bible teaches us in Acts 8 how Philip faithfully went and, and revival broke out in Samaria. And while revival was breaking out in Samaria, as he faithfully preached and taught, the Holy Spirit said, all right, I know like revival's happening right now, but I have a new assignment for you. You are going to go to a desert and you're going to go as far as Gaza. And so Philip in obedience went into the wilderness down as far as Gaza, the Bible says. And it was there that he had a divine appointment with an Ethiopian eunuch who he shared the gospel with, that Ethiopian received Christ. And it is believed that it was through this Ethiopian that the continent of Africa received the gospel. And so Philip's just faithful waiting tables. He's faithful preaching the gospel in Samaria. He's faithful to go to Gaza and for this divine appointment. But the Bible told us that he ultimately landed in Caesarea. And so the Bible says in verse 10, while they were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now, Agabus is a prophet. He's a prophet from Jerusalem. This is also not the first time we've seen Agabus. We are introduced to him back in Acts chapter 11 at the church at Antioch. This was Paul's sending church. And Agabus had gone up there and he had prophesied that a famine was going to come and a famine did come. And so Paul and Agabus are not strangers and now Paul's in Caesarea and now Agabus is coming down from Jerusalem to see him. And he says this in verse 11, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So in dramatic fashion, Agabus shows up 
And he gets what it's more probably more like a sash that would have held his clothes there around his waist. And he takes Paul's sash and he binds his feet and he bounds his hands. And he is saying, listen, the Holy Spirit has sent me to tell you this. This is what's waiting for you. If you go to Jerusalem, this is what is going to happen. Everybody knew who's knows who knows who sash that was knows whose belt that was he's like the belt of whoever owns this belt it's Paul they all know it's Paul and so he binds his hands his feet and he's like this is what's waiting for you and Agabus kind of reminds us a little bit about some of those Old Testament prophets who uh who did some pretty extreme things to teach memorable lessons the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah who walked barefoot and naked Telling people of what, how, how God would deal with the Egyptians. How he would humiliate them. Jeremiah put a wooden yoke around his neck. And smashed pots together to get everybody's attention. Ezekiel built a replica of Jerusalem and then destroyed it. To show what God would do if his wrath were to come upon the city. Hosea married a prostitute named Gomer. Who was unfaithful time and time again. God has given unique prophets, unique uh, techniques to get his message across. And here's Agabus. Agabus is here and he's, he's bound his, his hands. He's bound his feet. The church in Tyre is warning Paul. The church in Caesarea is warning Paul. But now his own team is going to warn him. His own team. Look at verse 12. When we heard this. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. When we heard this, we remember who's writing the book of Acts? Luke, Dr. Luke. This is the second volume of his two volume account. He wrote the gospel of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And so it's no longer the brothers and sisters in Tyre. It's no longer the brothers and sisters in Caesarea. It's his own team. It is, it is we, Luke and, and those closest to him are pleading for Paul not to go. No doubt they had an incredible love for Paul. No doubt they cared for his safety. But I just wonder if maybe that love and wanting to keep him safe didn't perhaps blind them to the fact that God had a calling on their life and to walk in obedience to what God had put on his life. And then not just that, but it could be that it could be that like Luke is with Paul. I mean, have you ever been with somebody that made you a little bit nervous when you were around them because you never knew what was going to happen? I mean, Luke was like Paul's personal physician. They had been through a lot of trial, a lot of struggle. They've been through a lot. They had a lot of mileage in together. But I just wonder, and I don't know this, but I just wonder if there wasn't a little bit of Luke being like, what about us? Like you, you see what's going to, if what happens to you, it's going to happen to us. And so they are pleading with him. They're pleading with him not to go. But for Paul, Paul knew our obedience always impacts other people. It always does. But for Paul, the safest place he could be was in the center of God's will. The center of God's will for his life. And so the church warned him entire. The church warned him in Caesarea. His own team warned him. But in verse 13, we see that Paul resolved to obey God 
in the face of certain suffering. He says in verse 13 that Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Over in Acts 20, 22, 23 says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul's like, I know, I understand what's at stake and I know you love me. But God has a purpose for my life and it's for his glory and it's for his mission. This is why Paul could say to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That this is why Paul could say to the Galatians in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's like, he gave himself for me, I give myself for him. And in verse 14, the Bible says, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. That ultimately they came to a place where they understood that for Paul, there was nothing that could shake him from being obedient to what God had called him to do. And the Bible says in verse 15 that after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. And Paul has officially made it to Jerusalem. He's here. Paul knows that affliction and suffering await him. The Holy Spirit has been telling him in every city that affliction awaits, suffering awaits. Paul has no idea of knowing exactly how everything is going to play out. But we do. We have the rest of the book of Acts. We have the New Testament. We know that Paul will probably be in Jerusalem about 12 days. And after being there 12 days, he will be arrested and he will be taken back to Caesarea where he will be in prison for two years. And then he will be removed from that prison and he will travel from Caesarea to Rome where he will be under house arrest for two years. He will get out for a little while and then he will, he will be back in prison and he will then ultimately be martyred for his faith. And he says this in Philippians 1.12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Like he had this way of kind of peeling back and going 40,000 foot in the air and to realize that those instructions that were divined by the Holy Spirit to the churches we read about in the New Testament, he's like, you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And so for him, it was, an act of obedience throughout our history. We have had men and women who have paid the ultimate price in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. In a, in a message from David Platt called The Mission Only the Church Can Stop, he shares a few examples, and I want to share a few exam, examples of those this morning. One is Jim Elliott. 
Jim Elliott, who decided to give his life to serve the Aka Indians in Ecuador, even though people told him he was too gifted to consider such a thing, he said this, Consider the call from the throne above. Go ye and from round about come over and help us. And even the call from damned souls below, send Lazarus to my brothers that they may come not to this place. Impelled them by these voices, I dare not stay home while these Indians perish. So what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets and the whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and, and the dust on their Bible covers. American believers have sold their lives to the service of mammon. And God has his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. Elliot and four other heroes gave their lives for the Aka Indians. David Livingstone, who went into the heart of Africa, wrote a letter to the London Missionary Society. So powerfully convinced am I that it is the will of the Lord that I should go to Africa. I will go no matter who opposes me. Later, after countless afflictions, he still wouldn't return home, even though others like Henry M. Stanley tried to persuade him to do so. Livingstone told Stanley, God has called me to Africa and I am staying here. William Carey, the father of modern missions, rose up in Europe and said to a group of ministers, I am going to go to India and make the gospel known there. A minister in the audience rebuked him. Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen in India, he will do it without consulting you or me. But Carey would not be persuaded and praise God that he wouldn't. Adoniram Judson was a Baptist missionary who had a desire to go to Burma. It's present day Myanmar, a closed country against the pleas of brothers. He took his new wife into the heart of Burma. He labored for 38 years, suffering through cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries that would claim the lives of his first wife and his second wife, as well as seven of his 13 children and numerous colleagues. As a result of his resolve, there are close to 4,000 Baptist congregations in the middle of Buddhist Burma, and over half a million believers are represented in those congregations. C.T. Stubb with a, was an Englishman, came to faith in Christ, and soon thereafter sensed God's call to go to China. His family brought a Christian worker in to dissuade him. Stubb said, let's ask God then. I don't want to be pig-headed and go out there on my own accord. I just want to do God's will. And so he sought God's will and decided that he should indeed go. And then later, when he was 50 years old, he resolved that he would spend the rest of his life in Sudan. And then others again urged him to do otherwise. In the next 20 years, he founded the worldwide evangelization crusade through his work in Africa, which has planted gospel seeds all over Africa, Asia, and South America. John G. Patton served for 10 years as the pastor of a church in Scotland. But God began to burden his heart for the new Hebrides. These were Pacific islands filled with cannibalistic peoples with no knowledge of the gospel. 20 years earlier, two missionaries had been cannibalized at that place. Patton received opposition from everywhere. The church offered him more money to stay. And when one older man protested, Patton famously said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. 
there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton wouldn't be persuaded and soon he would be putting the Lord's Supper's elements into the hands of former cannibals who had repented and trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Lottie Moon, age 32 years old, went to China, served there for 39 years. Here's what she said to the church. She said, please tell the new missionaries they are coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. And no doubt with each of these examples that all along the way, that there was this certainty that God was calling them to take that step of faith and obedience. And even times where even believers, even brothers and sisters, even folks closest to them were like, don't go, don't go. And so what do we do when God says go and everyone else says no? A couple principles as I wrap up this morning. One is this. May we never forget the will of God is in the word of God. The will of God is in the word of God. And so this step of obedience, whatever that is, you may be like, pastor, like, okay, I'm not necessarily feeling called to be a missionary in China. I don't feel necessarily like God is calling me to be a church planter. I don't know that God, or, or, or maybe, maybe God has stirred your heart in that way. Perhaps it's, it's foster or adoption. I mean, even like, like the church, I believe we have a responsibility. It doesn't mean everybody takes in a child, but whether it's praying, giving, or going, what is that step of obedience? What does that look like? And so the question is, does this align with God's word? And does this align with God's heart? The will of God is in the word of God. We got to remember, Paul discerned his calling from the word of the Lord. The Lord Jesus called him spoke to him, placed a calling on him. This is what's going to happen. And so may we be careful to say, I feel like God's calling me to this, but yet we haven't soaked our heart and our minds in his word. And so by God's grace, we discern through the word. Romans 12, two says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Even Paul is saying, we can't know the will of God apart from renewing our mind according to his word. So God transform our minds according to his word. A second is to fast and pray. To fast and pray. Time provides space for discernment. Fasting is to willingly put aside food or something else for a specific time for a spiritual purpose. That it's oftentimes in fasting that we are seeking or are even desperate for the right answer. We are desperate for the Lord to reveal to us what he wants us to do. And in those moments of hunger, we rest in that he is our ultimate satisfaction. And we ask and we long and we yield for him to answer. Perhaps it's when we're seeking the Lord for life altering, life shaking decisions that perhaps fasting and praying is what we need to do and to allow that time for God to discern what his will is for our lives. I love Luke 11. I've shared it many times, but I want to say it again. 
Over in Luke 11, verse 5, Jesus is teaching on prayer. He says, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will not go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence or his persistence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so oftentimes it is in those life altering decisions that a time of fasting and prayer for the Holy Spirit to help you discern, is this me or is this God? Is this me or is this God? And in this moment, we know Paul had set his heart on Jerusalem back in Asia. Like this wasn't just a split moment. I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is something God had put on his heart a while back. So God just continued to use that time to solidify that calling on his life. But for him, there was always a next step. For us as believers, there's always a next step. There's always a next step. What that step is in a closer walk with the Lord, what does that step look like? Like I said, it may be sharing your faith with someone you know who's far from God. That's a big step. It's going to perhaps change the relationship, change the dynamic. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but yet I know God is calling me to this. Just two weeks ago, it was awesome. Uh, we had two missionary families with us. One was from Denmark and one was from India. Just having to be here, stopping through on a Sunday morning. Perhaps God is stirring on your heart to missions. And that can look a lot of different ways. Or planting church, whatever that looks like. But fast and pray. And a third is this, value counsel. Value counsel, but above all, obey the Lord. Chuck Swindoll is one of my favorite heroes of the faith. He said this, God gave you two ears and one mouth. That suggests a good ratio when making significant decisions. Listen twice as much as you talk because we never learn anything by talking, only listening. Isn't that a good word? It's true. It's true. We, we learn by listening. And so wisdom is good. Wisdom is important. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. And so I believe with all my heart, the spirit of God gave the church those words. They knew what was awaiting him. They knew the suffering that was coming. God gave them that. They're sharing it. But yet they are they are interpreting that as like, don't go, Paul, don't go, Paul. But Paul's like, no, God, God has called me to go. He weighed out and he weighed out the advice of man. And in the end, it did not outweigh what the spirit was compelling him to do. And in the end, he went to Jerusalem. Ultimately, we are responsible to the Lord. John 14, 21, whoever, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. 
for Paul, it wasn't, it wasn't an obedience thing as much as it was a love thing. He loved the Lord. And because he loved the Lord, he walked in obedience to the Lord. And so I, th- I think about, it might be like, I want to imagine like our lives as a check, blank check. We don't really use these as much anymore. <laughs> I actually had to ask my wife, I was like, do we have one of those? Can I borrow one? Um, but uh, a blank check. And I want you to imagine this blank check as our life. I want you to think about this blank check as Paul's life. And I think if Paul's life were to represent this check, he might tear it out and it might say something like this. For the date, it would say anytime, anytime. Who do you pay to the order of? King Jesus, the one who rescued me from my sin, who paid my sin debt and who has given me peace with God. And not just peace with God, but a relationship with God. Place His Holy Spirit in me for His glory, for His mission. And I will spend eternity forever and ever and ever with Him. That's who I'm paying my life to the order of. So it doesn't matter what's waiting for me in Jerusalem. I know what God has called me to do. And so pay to the order of King Jesus how much? Everything. Everything. All that I have and all that I am to King Jesus. And if there was a memo, what do you put there? For his glory, for his mission. And there's only one person that can sign a check. It's that person. Paul can't sign your check. He can't sign my check. Only you can sign your check. Only you can surrender your life to King Jesus. And to live for his glory and to live for his mission. So here's what I'm convinced of. I believe as believers, there is always a next step. And I believe that it can look different for every single one of us. But yet if we would still our hearts and yield our hearts and minds to King Jesus, and we were to ask him, God, what are you calling me to do? That God will be faithful to show that. And I pray that we would, be able to sign the line and say, all for you because you're worthy. And it could be that you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so even today, be encouraged. God loves you so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came and lived a life that we could never live. The perfect son of God came, lived a life of perfection we could never live. He died on a cross. We all deserve that payment for our sin, but he took it for us. On the cross, he absorbed all of the wrath of the holiness of God against sin. He poured out on his own son for us. He was our substitute. He took our place. The gospel is Jesus in my place. Jesus took our place on the cross. They placed him on a tomb. And on the third day, the ladies went to, to the tomb and the stone was rolled away and he wasn't there. He, he was risen, proving that he alone has the power to forgive sin. So God help us to know it's not on our works. It's not on our being good enough that our good outweighs our bad. It is based on the finished work of Jesus. And if you are here and you have never admitted that you are a sinner, 
that you have repented and changed your mind about your sin and surrendered to King Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, I encourage you that today be the day of salvation. He loves you. And you can experience that same grace and forgiveness and love and purpose that God had for Paul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of Paul. That if we're not careful, we can be quick to put him in superstar status. Like I could never be Paul, and that's exactly right. You didn't make us to be Paul. You made us to be us. That God, as believers, you have rescued us. You have forgiven us in the relationship with you, through a relationship with you. And God, that you have rescued us and saved us for a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify you. It is to live for your glory. It is to live for your mission. And God, this life that you've entrusted us, we are stewards of that life as believers. Your Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us along each day. And it's going to look different for all of us. But Holy Spirit, would you reveal to each one of us as believers, what is that step that you're calling us to today? And God, that you would work and that you would move and that you would reveal and lead and guide every step of the way and even give the courage and the strength to obey. Father, may our lives be as blank checks made out to you for our lives. Because ultimately you came that we may have life and life to the full. In your presence is fullness of joy. It doesn't come any other way. If it does, it will be fleeting quickly. Only through you and in you is lasting peace and joy. So Father, may you find us surrendered to you. And Father, for anyone who's here who doesn't have a relationship with you, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Today, they would repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in you and you alone. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I'll invite you to stand with me. And as we do, we're just gonna have a time of response. And just know that we'll have pastors here. If we can pray over you, we would love to pray over you, pray for you. The altar is open and we just feel freedom to respond how the Lord would lead you this morning.